You're listening to Bodywise. I'm Matt. And I'm Kira. Kira, what's Bodywise all about? Oh, I was going to ask you this week. <laughs> I'm Matt, I'm a GP, and Kira's a nurse, and we talk about issues that we think are important with maybe a more relaxed and open minded stance than normal. Excellent. Is well that done. fair enough? Yeah. And what are we going to talk about today? Oh, we're going to talk about dementia. Another tough topic. So last week we talked about depression mm. and um, that was a hard one, wasn't it? You know, Yeah, it's a difficult topic. Um, and dementia is a difficult topic too because um, lots of people have been affected by dementia. They've had a family member mm. who's have had dementia and for a lot of people it's been a very difficult time as they've watched someone that mm. they love maybe change from how they used to be. Mm. Um, I've had several relatives who had dementia and one of the things that I would always say to patients or family members when they come in to me is that patients who have dementia generally don't know that they have dementia and I don't think using the term suffering from dementia is actually appropriate because people from dementia don't suffer from dementia it tends to be their relatives Mm. I often think that dementia is one condition where you're treating the patient but also their family particularly their partner and that the partner and the family needs a huge amount of support because it is and it can be at times very difficult. Mm. One of the um, professionals that we're going to talk to in this episode um, is going to mention the Northern Wellbeing Centre. Mm. And I know that that's been a really great resource for families of people with dementia. Can you explain a bit about the um wellness centres that we've got around the island? So this is a relatively new thing. Certainly in my experience in Ramsey, the Northern Wellbeing Partnership is up and running since January. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a really good idea. So all of those supports in the community have come together under one umbrella called the Northern Wellbeing Partnership. And the idea is that when I as a doctor, when you as a nurse, or when a member of the community reaches out looking for help, whether that's the help of a district nurse or maybe they don't know what help they need but they have a particular problem. For example, it could be that they're having difficulty with their memory or they need more help. That that issue that the person is having is dealt with by a group of people who decide exactly what supports you need. So it's it's kind of a one-stop shop for support that only really existed up until now before that what used to happen is I as a doctor and you as a nurse used to reach out to the district nurse or the physio mm. but now actually they've got a one stop shop and they might say actually Kira, this person needs to see more than an occupational therapist you know they're also suffering from loneliness and we're bringing someone in the third sector so I think it's a yeah. really good development for the Isle of Man I totally agree and I know for me um, I'll often see people who are carers who are really struggling um, and getting very limited support, maybe really struggling to get any respite for a loved one. Mm. Um, and actually, their well-being centres have been fantastic at putting them inside, uh, putting them in some directions of not only monks care related things, but like you said, third sector stuff. Mm. We've got an amazing northern men in sheds, and I know there's more than just the northern one, um, but they can be fantastic for loneliness. Um, from meeting new people and learning new skills and then there's more isn't there mm. outside of that as well there is so what we're going to do now um, is I suppose the format for the programme has been that we tend to talk to an expert in the resident field who randomly is from Ireland bizarrely enough and uh, we put a few questions to them and our first uh, our expert this evening is Dr Joe Brown uh, and he works in a uh, the largest hospital in Ireland um, and the largest centre for memory in the country so I think it's going to be interesting to hear his perspective yes let's and the reason we've asked Joe to come into us today is number one he's Irish obviously and I'm super biased but number two uh, is I've worked with Joe uh, and I continue to work with Joe and uh, and Joe knows his stuff Kira. I think you work with everyone. Hi, Joe. Hi, uh, good afternoon or good evening to you both. Hello, thank you so much Hi. for joining us. So one of the things we wanted to talk about today, Joe, which is obviously the most obvious question, is um, probably what everyone is, is asking, but like, what is dementia? Kira, is that, a, is that a fair question to open with? For sure. And also, um, is dementia Alzheimer's and is Alzheimer's dementia? I get that one quite a bit. <laughs> Oh, so they're hard questions. Number one, um, so I mean, dementia is uh, can present in different ways. So dementia is either it can be either memory loss, it can be problems with concentrating. Um, it may be something to do with where somebody's not familiar or not doing their daily tasks as good as they should, whether it be whether it be shopping or paying the bills as normally, and sometimes they're struggling to follow conversations or being okay. 
completely confused or there's mute changes. Mm. Um, depending on the type of dementia, so there's many types of dementia. So Alzheimer's is probably the one that everyone knows about. Mm. Um, it typically is the one that where people will have problems regarding memory, particularly uh, knowing somebody or recognizing a face or mm. they're kind of repetitively asking questions and they're just finding new tasks. So giving them, let's say, let's say remote control for a TV to find that really, really hard. Uh, and sometimes they find read uh, the right words to say. Now, there are other types of dementia. Uh, one of them is vascular dementia, which is something you see with people who might have strokes. Mm. Um, there are some unusual types of dementia, some associated with Parkinson's disease called, called Lewy body type dementia. There's some that front, uh, affect your frontal lobes, which are kind of the areas that kind of control your personality. So therefore, these people might have... Uh, altered uh, sensitivity around other people's feelings. They sometimes be, uh, might become very cold on feeling, uh, lack of social awareness, so they start being disinhibited. And mm. uh, sometimes they might have language problems. Mm. And then there's kind of um, a, kind of a group that don't ne- necessarily fall into one particular group. They can be a gradual decline over time, um, mm. and they might more manifest more behavioural changes and things like that. Mm. So it, it's very hard to kind of. I think Alzheimer's is probably the more common one you mm. see. Sure. or hear about but there's many types uh, when i um have patients coming into me there seems to be two different types of presentation there's people who notice something wrong with them and want to deal with it straight away and then there's other people that might sit on a problem for a long time because they're not ready to discuss it or they hope it goes away um or they're frightened of it and often um, in the cases of dementia i've noticed that people seem to present a little further down the line they've wanted to keep it to themselves they're worried they're frightened and they they present late on and i wanted to ask you what difference would it make to somebody's pathway if any difference if they came and presented to their gp with memory problems at an early stage so the first thing I'd be kind of wondering is, is it generally a memory problem or is it an underlying, sometimes what we see is uh, maybe there's a, some other medical condition going on. So mm. presenting a GP is probably a good thing to have that assessed. So we often see people with, let's say, thyroid disorders or underlying problems with their blood, blood counts and things like that presenting in a very unusual type of way with memory loss or concentration. Simply, let's say you're hypothyroid, you might have, let's say, problems in concentrating and things like that. You might be a bit more sleepy. Mm. Um, another group might be people who have chronic obstructive airways disease who kind of have sleep apnea. So they would often kind of present with kind of a fogginess of the brain, not able to concentrate as well as they used to. And often they're presenting with a memory problem, but not necessarily um, dementia. They're presenting, their fear is dementia and there can be an anxiety behind that as well. So sometimes addressing the underlying medical reason in some cases can be enough. Mm. Um, some things are very easy to treat, whether it be, let's say, a thyroid disorder, sleep apnea less so, um, you might need to have that properly investigated. Mm. And sometimes somebody, let's say, if it's anemia or some other kind conditions they can be also addressed either from a medical clinic or in a gp practice as well so the first thing i'd probably say to most patients is is probably make sure there is an order an underlying medical reason for why they're feeling um the memory isn't as good as it used to be mm. um sometimes people do get overly worked up over their memory um sometimes it can be so a lot often people can be just absent-minded uh, which is kind of a common trait and actually more intelligent people tend to be absent-minded um, so therefore, anxiety can play into this kind of memory problem as well. So again, uh, you might see that somebody who might be in somebody's very stressed and a very kind of high pressure job. They're not thinking as well as they would normally. And sometimes dealing with that anxiety and stress can be enough to get over the memory problem. Mm. Um, often it is hard sometimes to make a diagnosis of dementia. And often there can be symptoms preceding up to many years mm. uh, before they actually come to presentation. So we typically would see people in the hospital, um, I'll be a little bit biased and say that we have actually probably seen them a bit more advanced than let's say in general practice, mm. um, who probably had symptoms going on for two or three years. And it's only when you talk to relatives or the patient themselves, oh yeah, that you know, I did have problems with my memory there, or there was a behavioral change noticed. So sometimes people don't are not aware that they have a memory problem until it's probably uh, later on. But that doesn't mean there isn't a treatment or treatments available for some of these people. And what I'm hearing that is that dementia is, is complex and it sounds like there's lots of different kinds of dementia. But basically what people need to know about dementia is that dementia is a problem with your memory 
and that's really all that you need to worry about it's up for the doctors to figure out what kind of dementia that you have and where we go from there would that be kind of a fair overall assessment yeah i think it's very fair and i think sometimes um some memory problems are reversible so it's not a case of that this is going to progress some people once they have the underlying condition mm. looked at and addressed it can actually reverse um, yeah. so that's probably the more mm. encouraging side of it i think as that's well. really interesting because i think a lot of people do think oh this is me now mm. but another yeah. one we, one we'd see a lot of in in, in um in general practice shows depression where people or family members are brought in um because there is a problem with their memory and actually what they have is a is a severe form of depression which is something that we would see i'm not saying very often but often in in general practice and there's just a lot of different things that can affect your memory and it's not always dementia and that's true i mean one of the concerns we have is pseudo dementia so that's what matt is describing there are more people who do present with a depression depressive like episode um it may be lingering for many many months and no one really has really kind of diagnose it mm. and often they come to attention when it's more profound and at that point as well some mm. people um, don't realize they're depressed um, and often it's only when it's brought to the GP or the practitioner's attention then they kind of kind of admit to that they have an issue um, mm. so sometimes it's just a kind of who do you talk to or who do you trust to talk to if you've got mm. a memory problem it's quite intimidating to say that you might have a memory problem one of the questions I wanted to ask you is when I was in college, which was hundreds of years ago, one of the things they told us is that people who have dementia don't come to the doctor thinking they have dementia, that it's really unusual for somebody who has dementia to actually realize that it tends to be loved ones or people around you. Has that school of thought changed? Um, I think some of the awareness programs have helped people be a bit more open about themselves. Um, I think in general, you're right that some people, it's really the relatives that pick it up more quicker than the actual uh, person who has the underlying memory problem. But I think people now feel as though because there's avenues and there's things you can do, whether it be planning for the future, with the treatments that may be available, uh, people are a bit more upfront about it. Years ago, certainly in Ireland, it was very much something where it was actually suppressed. There was almost a segregation of older people with memory problems mm. and almost like they were almost um, kept out of sight. Mm. Um, I think that's kind of changed from now, um, mm. although some people are frightened of being segregated again from their family mm. if they do have memory problems. And if so, let's say someone um, so often what we, we find in general practice is we would meet the patient or meet their family and say, yes, there's definitely potentially a memory problem here. And then that's really where the general practitioners would hand over to experts like yourselves. And then in terms of would you be able to outline to us kind of what that pathway looks like? So, you know, one of the big steps is they're seen by occupational therapy and they do these kind of complex memory tests. What then happens? You guys then, I suppose, are given the results of these tests and and what happens after that? So, for example, so if someone is referred to my clinic, um, often the the standard test will be to kind of do a memory test. So a lot Mm. of people hear things like an MSC or a MOCA or something like that. Yeah. Depending on so some some people with memory problems are not as straightforward. There's much more advanced memory tests you can do in a clinic, but they do take time. So often in a clinic, you may only have about 20 minutes to assess somebody. And you might want to refer them on to a more specialized clinic where it might take a little bit longer. Mm. Uh, and that's where the occupation therapist, the psychologist gets involved. They kind of cover a lot of grounds, whether it's an underlying um, organic problem. So whether it be like underlying stroke disease or is it something like depression, as we said earlier on, or is there something else going on where it's affecting their tasks? So that's where an occupational therapist can be very useful, that they can give them a routines that can improve their memory, but also it also demonstrates them if they're if they're able to do certain tasks or learn new tasks as well. Um, sometimes what we find with people with memory problems, there might be other conditions that can be rectified. So they might have issues around their falls or mobility and things like that, um, which where we sometimes do get our physiotherapists involved as well. So sometimes you might find somebody with a, maybe a vascular dementia might have had underlying strokes and may have already had um, problems with mobility. So we try and kind of do a multi, uh, d- d- a multi kind of team assessment. So what what we do now and call it in in the geriatric world now is comprehensive geriatric assessment, where 
it isn't just the medical problems. We look at kind of the, the kind of social work side of it, the the occupational therapist, the physiotherapist, nutrition, mm-hmm. um, and all the things that do make up an individual, a much more holistic mm-hmm. approach to a patient rather than just the medical reasons. So, Got you. So it's um, much more than just um, medicating somebody to, to to help them along their pathway. What kind of treatments are available for people who've been diagnosed with dementia? So in terms of just even just taking from the medical side of it, often it's more kind of healthy, kind of more healthy lifestyle. So often if they've had high blood pressure, let's say you're talking about somebody who's got vascular dementia, things like correcting their cholesterol, high blood pressure. Um, sometimes they, there is the use of some medication that might enhance memory. But again, that's controversial in some areas of the world as well. Um, there are basic things people can do. So in terms of exercise, so exercise seems to have uh, improved not necessarily memory, but also social interaction. So being able to get out, being independent are all good things. Um, trying to maintain somebody's independence as best as long as we can is probably the way to go. Um, there are other legal implications. Um, sometimes if we felt that somebody's memory is declining, we might advise them regarding how to plan for the future. So in Ireland, we have power of attorney um, or an enduring power of attorney where people can plan and think what they would happen in five or 10 or 15 years if something happened to you. It's very much like trying to do a, for want of a better phrase, a living will. So if you had property, what would you want done with uh, property if you're, you weren't able to manage it mm. and then in terms of kind of more practical things in the house so there's a lot of things people can do in terms of telemedicine whether setting up monitors in the house whether it be pendant alarms um, reminders so and then they will be probably more useful and more moderate to, moderate case of dementia um, um, unfortunately, when you get to more latter end of dementia, some of these things are quite hard to learn and can be quite confusing for somebody and irritating in some cases. So they may not always be useful in some people, um, some of the telemedicine uh, avenues. In. But they are very useful in people who might need prompting or might need help um, sure. kind of reminding them of certain things or appointments and things like that. And I just wanted to ask one more question. So from a nursing point of view, when I trained, which was even longer ago than when Matt trained, um, we were always told reorientate, reorientate, and it, it was such a heartbreaking process a lot of the time to have to let somebody know that um, someone that was really important to them had died several times yeah. a day. Um, is yeah. that still what we do? Um, to a certain extent, but I personally, I I try. So the way I look at people with dementia is like uh, going into a filing cabinet. You don't know which part of the filing cabinet has been opened up. So I kind of, if they feel as though they're very sad that day, I try and address that issue, why are you sad that day, and try and kind of go around and almost, it's not necessarily acting, but it's just kind of being in their position. If they're in a very angry final phase, well, then you're trying to decompress that a little bit. So often it's very much how they're behaving on the day themselves and what are they feeling, and you're trying to diffuse situations. So I think the reorientation Yes, it is useful, um, but sometimes that might cause more frustration and anger in the patient. That's what I would normally sure. find. So often mm-hmm. when I'm on the ward, I try and work out what has upset them or irritated them and then try and work around that as best I can. And often uh, we would often give a patient tasks and some of the things we do in wards now are either um, kind of pastimes. Sometimes music therapy can be very helpful. Um, I've seen massage therapy of hands being quite useful in some patients in the NHS where I worked in Leicester as well. So there are different avenues in controlling or some of the emotions that somebody has. Sometimes they just don't have control or very good control over their emotions when they've got uh, more moderate to severe dementia. So it sounds like to summarise our, our conversation, Joe, basically like so dementia is where you have memory problems. The first step would be to go to see your GP or your practice nurse. And then what happens after that is, I suppose, the, the team in the hospital will assess your memory. And then there are various treatment options available there. Um, I mean, would that be a fair summary of our conversation? Would there be any kind of other kind of tips or recommendations that you feel myself and Kira should have asked you or, or things that you would say would be good from a protective perspective from your health? You said exercise, a healthy, oh. balanced diet. You know, there are two things that you can do to protect your memory going forward. 
So I think other things to kind of, is everything in moderation. So smoking, if you, if you look at pure stroke disease and stroke prevention, smoking is probably, I know, mm-hmm. alcohol in moderation, not excessive alcohol. Um, in terms of a healthy lifestyle, exercising, social interactions, trying to kind of interact with more people um, can be a good thing. Um, and also keeps your network of connections as well. Um, and also trying to, in some way, uh, try to be as independent as you can. So whether if you do find that your memories decline, then probably have that reasonable conversation with the rest of your family um, about how to plan for this for the future. Often um, people can do these things in advance and be able to kind of put out their own wishes for that eventuality if it does happen. That's been really enlightening. I'm really glad that we could speak to you today. So thank you so much for giving us your your time. It's fantastic. No problem. Very welcome. Thank you very much. So that was uh, Dr. Brown's perspective. And it's always really interesting, I suppose, from our perspective in primary care to get the perspective of our hospital colleagues, because what we see is often very different and, and possibly at a different stage to what they're used to dealing with. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And being able to talk to someone who's dedicated so many years of their life to that mm. area is, is awesome, isn't it? And one of the things uh, you've done, Kira, as part of this series is to really talk to people who either are suffering from the condition themselves uh, or people who, you know, who work in the fields. And who are we going to talk to this time around? We're going to talk to Emily Hignett. Emily is um, an old, she's a mental health nurse and she works in older people's mental health. Okay, that's going to be a really interesting perspective. So we'll listen to Emily now. Emily, can you tell me a little bit about your role, what you do? Of course I can, Kira. So I am a registered mental health nurse. I work for the, as you said, the Older Persons Mental Health Service and we are the memory clinic. Uh, well, we have, have the memory clinic and we also help people with things like anxiety, depression over the age of 65. Um, obviously the kind of relevant thing today and, and a big part of our job is the memory service. Um, so we help people at home who have memory problems. We do assessments with them. We refer them on to other services that can offer support and guidance. Um, and we generally just try and keep people plodding along at home as well as they can for as long as they can. We do have an, an older population on Ireland and a big part of our role is dementia and is helping people with memory problems. Um, and as I said, on the back of COVID, we've definitely seen an increase just because people have been so isolated um, and not being able to have that support from family and friends like they used to. Um, we, you know, we, we've seen a big increase in terms of people with memory problems. So in your role, when mm-hmm. you meet someone for the first time yeah. who has a dementia problem, yeah. Um, when they present you, how do you go about helping them and assessing them? Okay, so obviously we we get the referrals from the GP. Uh, we have two meetings, uh, two meetings a week, uh, where we discuss all, all of our initial referrals and what we think is the best pathway for them. If someone is referred to memory clinic and we think an initial memory assessment is is what's appropriate for them, then. What that looks like, the memory clinic process is, is kind of mainly three three appointments. So the initial appointment is where we um, pop out and meet meet the person at home. It could be at home. It could be at our our, our base down in down in Douglas, um, and we generally you know we have a chat about you know what their opinion of it is because a lot of the time people don't don't think they've got a memory problem and it's usually family members or or friends that have kind of flagged it up with the GP um but you know we we have a have a chat about what we think is you know is going on how they function at home um you know what their interests are what you know what keeps them stimulated or or not as 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 COVID has you know um as COVID has shown us but um you know we we just have a chat generally about that person's view of of, of what what's going on and if they think they've got a memory problem uh, we do a quick memory test and we look at people's mood and things as well because um, that can have an impact on their memory um, and quite often that kind of goes hand in hand obviously if people are starting to notice that they've got memory problems it can be quite a daunting um a daunting realization in an older age and it can be quite quite you know in intimidating in a way and so we you know we try and be as holistic as we can and and look at that as part of our initial assessment process from that if we decide that we're going ahead with memory clinic um, we ask for an appointment with our consultant one of our consultant psychiatrists um, which is what we call the diagnosis appointment which is where we discuss all the all the memory tests and the brain scan that we ask for obviously prior to that we do some more cognitive assessments um, which again people usually dread and say I've not revised for this but it's not that bad and you know we try and make it as as kind of light-hearted as we can and make it more of a general chit-chat than formal assessment because it is quite intimidating um 
and then as I said from from that in the the final appointment with the with the doctor we look at um, all the assessments that we do together um, we review the brain scan that we ask for and then we kind of have a general chit chat about if we think there's a memory problem what we think is causing it and anything that may may be able to help in terms of medications and things like that so when you have someone who's been diagnosed with dementia mm-hmm. what can your team do to improve their situation okay so in terms of, of of quality of life i think there's a massive misconception that people who have received a diagnosis of dementia you know it's a kind of done deal mm. that's that you know um that's not true obviously um i i often say to people you know that the reason why we do what we do is to try and keep people living at home as independently as they can for as long as they can um there quite often are certain medications if, if someone has received a diagnosis of dementia that they're, they're, they're quite often are medications that can help and um, they don't bring memory back back um, unfortunately but they you know they, their aim is to kind of stagnate that process and that deterioration we we have memory review nurses um who repeat the assessments maybe six monthly <laughs> we're just uh, laughing at walter the dog walter the puppy who's just he wants to be involved. <laughs> um, yeah, we have memory review nurses that we can kind of repeat the assessments, assessments six monthly, 12 monthly. And, and we generally just kind of keep keep an eye on people. We try not to be, you know, too intrusive. Um, and what I say to people is, you know, the less we see you, the better, really, because we want you plodding along at home. But, you know, just, just so people know that we are kind of in the background, really. The point in doing the memory retests is we use, obviously, each assessment. The first assessment we do is the baseline. Um, and then the retests that we do from that, we can compare and we can look back and see if there has been a deterioration. You know, we have care support workers that work in our team who can help people engage in social activities. Because quite often that's a big thing. If someone's received a diagnosis, you know, people tend to, you know, they, well, they can tend to kind of isolate themselves or label themselves as, well, I can't do this or I can't do that. Or um, quite often, you know, the people are just kind of at home especially now with covid a lot of the people's social routines have have stopped and they're not able to engage in some of the activities that they used to so our care support workers are able to help people look into social stuff that might be of interest it could Mm. be men in sheds it could be the live at home scheme and we've got numerous day centers obviously depending on kind of where you live and what you've got access to but just kind of general general well-being stuff really to keep mm. people occupied and to make sure that their mood is you know their, their mood is as good as it can be and their quality of life is as, quality of life is as, as good as it can be really sure so when I speak to people um in my clinic mm-hmm. who whose lives are affected by dementia for the most part it's speaking to family members yeah. um who are worried um often a spouse who feels like they're carrying a lot and, and feel quite alone. I think that's a, a feeling that a lot yeah. of people have. They feel quite lonely mm-hmm. and like they're carrying quite a weight. Um, where could you direct these people to who are feeling um, like they're struggling with their current situation and they're feeling either like they have a lot to carry or they feel quite alone in what's going on? Um, of course, that is, that, is a, that is a big thing. You know, care of stress is a, a massive thing. And I always say to people, it's easy for us at the end of the day. You know, we come in, do what we do, and we walk away. But when you're living with someone 24-7, that's a massive, you know, massive, massive burden to, to hold. Um, I always say to people, you can call us anytime. 642-879, you know, if, if, if your relative is known to us, we'll, I say, I'll be your moan and Annie. Ring, you know, let me know what, what's going on. And if we can help, we, we will do, you know. And there are kind of carers groups and things out there, some of them informally. We do have um, decafs, what we call the Dementia Cafe. So I, I am based down in the south of the island and our decaf um, is the second Wednesday of every month, two till four, down at Port St Mary golf pavilion um, so basically that's an informal chat and a cup of tea with uh, the person who's who's been diagnosed the person with the memory problem or dementia and their carer friend or relative quite often we have staff from Oppens down there staff you know ourselves and we have um, admiral nurses as well but basically the, the admiral nurses can offer kind of post-diagnostic support um, and support for the, the person with the diagnosis 
we've got the Alzheimer's Society as well who can offer you know support for families and, and the individual who's being diagnosed but the the what, what quite often I direct people to as well is the in terms of access and resources in the community is the um, integrated hubs the wellbeing partnerships so as I said I'm based down south so we've got the southern wellbeing partnership down south which is based in Tyrosian Old Southland um, and basically they're a kind of single point of access for most services um, and they kind of know what the crack is really what's going on you know what people can get access to so they're a good good point of contact mm. um, yes definitely this we've, we're really lucky to have the um, well-being partnerships um, in, I think we've got a north a south and a west now haven't yeah. we yeah so we've got the west was the first one the west was the first one to get up and running um, and they're based down um, at the well it's kind of where the current home was the day mm-hmm. centre down there Um Obviously, the, the southern mm. one is kind of up and running now. Uh, the northern one's going to be up and running soon. Um, and the west, I think, will be... Because, obviously, there's quite a lot of GP practices to incorporate in that. Um, the the eastern one. The eastern one, sorry, yeah, the eastern one. Um, but, yeah, no, we are really, really lucky to, to have that. Um, as I said, just that single point of contact for, for services. Because quite, quite often, as you say, it is people feeling completely overwhelmed by their situation. Um, and quite often, it's just letting people know what resources are out there, you know, mm. um, and that there is things that, you know, some things may not fit everyone, but there are there are things out there that may be of help, you know, and we want people to know that, that the peop- you know, there are people there ready, ready to help if, if needed. So the wellbeing partnership groups, if you're someone um, who is struggling with dementia, either mm-hmm. for yourself or within your home, mm-hmm. you can approach your local wellbeing, um, wellbeing partnership to look at what different agencies can um, become involved in your case and, and improve your, your life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and as part of our assessment process as well, if, if, if the person with the diagnosis has come through our service, which obviously quite often they will, um, you know, we try and, um, you know, we'll try as part of our assessment to, to, to signpost people, we'll try and signpost people to the relevant services as we feel fit and necessary, really. Um, but yeah, you know, there are, depending on what the person's needs are, there are, you know, there are care agencies out there. As I said, there are those kind of um, third sector, you know, men in sheds and live at home and befrienders and things mm. like that. Um, there is support for carers and family members, um, that kind of post-diagnostic um, support that that period um, maybe of just receiving a diagnosis or maybe just having it confirmed because quite often people do know you know um, and just kind of having that cemented really can be quite like right okay this is what we're dealing with um, so yeah they they you know they, they will have access to to those as you say different agencies that may be able to offer support um I think pretty much everyone has some sort of experience of dementia, Mm -hmm. whether with a family member, a close family member or a neighbor. Um, And sometimes when we look right back, um, you know, decades ago to care that was received, it can be really part of of the worry Mm -hmm. of seeking help and a diagnosis. Absolutely. What would you say to people who recognising in their self that actually um, either they themselves are really struggling mm-hmm. with memory problems or their loved one is, um, but they feel really frightened about approaching services. Of course, and this is a big thing. It's one of the biggest barriers that I have to try and overcome as a professional, you know, building those relationships with people. What I'd say first and foremost is we're not that scary. We're not that scary. We're not, you know, we're not big monsters that are going kind to of come and scoop you up and take you away from who you love and what you love and, you know, your, your current situation. The reason why we do what we do is to keep people living at home as independently as they can for as long as they can. Times are very different now. Balabona doesn't exist. You know, there are necessary services, you know, if, if, if people need more support. But we try and keep people at home for as long as we can, you know. And what I always say to people, because it quite often does happen where, you know, people will... Because even just that first step of going to the GP is a massive thing because you are... It's having to it's having to admit that yeah there is something wrong you know um, and as you say quite often people's experiences are informed by oh well my mother you know in the eighties was taken away into a home and things are different now times are very different um, number one we don't have the space in homes to put people yeah. in you know um, 
and as I said, we, we want to keep people at home. That's what we that's what we want to do. Um, so it is a big step, you know, as I said, going to the GP in the first instance and, and admitting that there is a problem is a massive thing. Um, and I always say to people, you know, I'd, I'd rather us I'd rather us be able to do something about it than in, you know, three, four months, years, whatever it might be, things become unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing sometimes. Um as I said, it, you know, we're not that scary and it is hard when you have to kind of admit that there is something wrong. It kind of makes it all real, doesn't it? Mm. You know, people often will just bury their head in the sand and say, no, no, she's she's fine. It's just a water infection or no, no, it's just an off day. Mm. Um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes when those off days become a bit more frequent, um, it's scary and it's difficult to manage, you know, and especially seeing that change in a loved one is, is a really difficult thing mm. to have to go through. Mm. You yeah. know, but we are there to help. We are there to help. And, you know, the less we see of people, the better, really. We just want to kind of bob in, do what we need to do, make sure people have got what they need and then leave people be. So your primary goal yeah. is to allow people to be as independent um, as much as they can mm-hmm. and have the best quality of life as they can whilst uh, making their own life choices. Absolutely, absolutely. And obviously sometimes there does become a time where people do think they can still do the washing and still do the cooking. And it's like, I'm sorry, my love, that's, you know, not anymore. Um, And, you know, we do step in at the relevant points to make decisions on people's behalf if it's deemed necessary. Um, You know, but if someone wants to stay at home because they've lived in their home for 50 years and that's where all their memories are, then we don't want to take that away. You know, we want to make sure that we just put the scaffolding in place to make sure that they, you know, they can carry on doing what they do. Um, How do you think that we can destigmatize um, dementia? Obviously talking about it helps, mm. you know, and people sharing their experiences. And I do think that's becoming more, you know, people will say, oh, my nana had dementia, or oh, yeah, my granddad, or oh, I remember this. Um, I think, yeah, just people talking about their experiences of if they've been through the memory clinic process or they've been through the process of getting a diagnosis, talking to people about it, um, you know, obviously there was that... Did you ever watch that TV programme that was on? I can't remember what it was called now, but it was basically people who'd been diagnosed with dementia, younger people in their, you know, 50s, 60s, kind of early 70s, um, who were maybe still in part-time work or still mm. kind of engaging in um, whether it was charity work or... or um, like part-time jobs um and the whole point in that was to try and show people that just because you've received a diagnosis doesn't make you incapable Mm. you know Mm. um it's like with the driving is people think oh well you know if they're still driving or well if i receive a diagnosis of dementia i can't drive anymore in some cases that may be the case but actually not in all cases Mm. you know i had a lady who came through memory clinic relatively recently who received a diagnosis and actually she's doing quite well in her direction you know she doesn't drive far family have got no concerns um we have to report it to the dvla but it doesn't necessarily mean you can't drive anymore Mm. um you know so i think um just kind of yeah people being more open about their experiences of of, of living with it um Mm. I'm talking about, you know... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, it's OK. I'm just watching the dog take the opportunity to completely trash the toys there. Um, you know, it's really interesting talking to Emily about what she does within her role because um, within my role, speaking to people who are really concerned about approaching dementia services because they're frightened of what the future holds and they're frightened of a loss of control... Um, they're frightened of of that feeling of losing their mind, that actually it's quite the opposite and that approaching dementia services means optimising your um, well-being and keeping you um, as independent um, and in control for as long as possible. So it's actually the very opposite of the fear that so many people have. And it's really interesting talking to Emily because... She's young and and vibrant (laughs) and really excited about the role that she's doing. Um, And this is exactly where she saw her career going Mm -hmm. um, as a trainee nurse. And it's lovely to see someone with such a passion um, in long-term health. Emily, how do you work with the idea that the people who you are caring for are not going to um, 
recover from their long-term condition that's the hard part that is the hard part is knowing that you know unfortunately the nature of what dementia is it's it's awful you know it's not a not a very nice illness but what I like to think well what what helps me is is knowing that well (laughs) hoping that my involvement with someone's you know that really difficult period in someone's life kind of makes the best of it you know Mm. it's not nice and ultimately we know what's coming but I want to make sure that people have a great time you know and have the best quality of life that they can have just because you've got dementia doesn't mean that you can't do things, doesn't mean you can't, you know, um, can't carry on doing the things you love, can't have a great quality of life, mm. can't go out and talk to people and engage with people, you know. Um, I I absolutely love what I do, you know. As you said, I've, I've, always, I've always wanted to do older persons from when I was a student, you know. Um, I've just always had a real passion for it and just knowing that, well, <laughs> I hoping that, what I can do can just make that little bit of difference or even just make make the person's experience of going through memory clinic a little bit more positive because mm. you say it, it isn't nice and it's a very scary thing to go to mm. to go through you know um I hope that the kind of personal experiences that I've had with dementia in my family um I can relate to people with that and mm. as you say look most most people probably all people do have an experience uh, with dementia whether it's a loved one a relative a neighbor um you know so just using that to kind of connect with people and try and support people through that process mm. um you know I would I would hope that's what that's what kind of makes a difference in, in my role mm. um, so Emily and I were talking before about how um the diagnosis and the experience of dementia mm-hmm. for the patient and the family is a really big thing and it's not something that any of us want to go through and the purpose of of this conversation was not to minimize anyone's experience we totally can see what a big deal a diagnosis like this is Absolutely. but more to really highlight um, how people's experiences can be improved and optimised and people's wishes be taken account of and that there's loads of things that we can do within a difficult time Mm -hmm. to improve the experience. Is that how you think of your role as well? Absolutely, absolutely. And as you say, we we don't aim to just brush it off as another thing that goes on someone's past medical history. It is a massive thing. It's a completely life-changing thing. And what I find for a lot of people is if they've lived quite independently, all of a sudden have to either rely on other people or let other people in, even just have another professionals in your home asking these stupid questions about what day it is or who Harry Barnes is, you know, is quite a difficult thing to get over. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I as I said, I, I think just hopefully our, our involvement um, in that person's, you know, in that, that person's process through memory clinic kind of improves people's experience and and addressing the stigma as well you know as you said it's 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 people people don't get better from it but that as I said that doesn't mean to say they can't live a fulfilling life Mm. you know and eventually there does become a point where maybe the person can't engage actively in the memory assessments anymore you know when their kind of physical needs increase and they do need a lot more help and support with that um you know so then it's about how we just help families adjust to that um because it is a massive thing you know that that whole lifestyle change of letting people in and accepting more support and even just living with the idea of dementia you know it's it's that thing that it's like cancer everyone hears it it's everywhere you know it's all over the newspapers it's all over the the, you know the radio on the telly we think well it's never going to happen to me um but unfortunately it does it's becoming I think more prevalent because people are living longer which is a great thing um you know so it's just saying you know what it happens it does happen it's life-changing but hopefully we can kind of help change things for the better Mm. as well you navigate it in the most positive way possible you try to you try to you know emily's great because she you can really hear from listening to her can't you that she's very um enthusiastic you know she can just uh, me and emily talked for hours really um and it was difficult to pull out the bits 
uh, of the conversation to put in the show but she's so passionate about what she does um, within older person's mental health and it's really lovely to chat to someone that wants to sh- shout it from the rooftops and and get her get her information out there if you like. Mm. Hi, I'm Rebecca Trainer and I'm a speech and language therapist. Um, working now as an independent practitioner. Um, I've previously previously worked for Manx Care um, in the adult speech and language therapy team. My passion as a speech and language therapist is all about improving communication to change lives. Um, Dementia can impact on a person's ability to talk and this can impact on many parts of the individual's life and can also affect people close to them as well. Communication is so key to all aspects of our life, from asking for a simple request for a drink to meeting with friends for a meal. The loss of verbal communication can feel devastating, but it is important to remember that communication is not just about talking, but as adults who have talked since we were small can lose track of the other ways to communicate. Even if a person has lost the ability to talk, it doesn't mean they don't want to tell their own story. It doesn't mean they don't want to request a drink. But how can we plan for this or be a supportive conversation partner? So I've got a few ideas to share with you today that I know have worked um, in my years of working as a speech and language therapist. One of the key things I feel as verbal communication is lost or reduced is joint attention. This is something to use that you both know that you are talking about, so it focuses the conversation. This could be getting a family photo out, could be the local newspaper, it could be old photos or a calendar. You can then use this to support the conversation. You can ask questions, you can point, you can comment. When you are tuned into the conversation and the joint attention, this makes communication so much easier. Plan for the future. This is key. Create a life storybook. A life storybook is basically you telling your story through pictures, through simple phrases, um, and it's a great opportunity for a family member to support somebody in creating this. It gives you time to laugh over old photos of old old holidays or times when things have been um, difficult or it can be a, a, an opportunity to remember key parts of a person's life. Again, this brings in joint attention that you are letting them tell their story non-verbally, verbally, any form and writing it down for them. I've had a recent experience of how this has enabled a person with dementia to go to a class and tell their story using the pictures that we had put together. Another tip is non-verbal communication. It's really important to remember that 50 to 80% of our communication is non-verbal. We need to be good at looking at people's facial expressions Maybe they use a gesture such as pointing for an item that they would like. We could use objects to sort of support a request. Maybe showing several tops that they could wear in the day and getting them to choose them. Using non-verbal when the verbal word has gone is so supportive. We often rely so much on verbal content that as adults we miss the little additional clues Um, that show us what that person might be wanting. I think it's really important to recognise when a person loses their verbal communication, they still do want to communicate. It's part of us as a human. We, as conversational partners or family members who are struggling with this change, need to give this person, the individual, a means to communicate. We need to also give them, the, give them the opportunity. This might take a little bit more time. It might take a bit of imagination. But it also means that we can ensure people can be included and maintain their confidence in communication. 
And it also allows us as a family member or a conversational partner to still be involved with that person we love so much. This isn't always easy and I've often had my challenges with this. Um, And it's not easy to change a habit of a lifetime. We're always reliant on talking. But if we recognise it early and support it early, it can be the key to allowing this person to continue to communicate in many, many different ways and therefore continue their confidence, continue their social interaction and to always be part of family conversations. So I'm very lucky that I got to speak to some families who have been affected by dementia. Yes. Um, We're going to listen to them now. Hi, my name's Rosie and I'm here just to talk a little bit about my mum um, and living with Alzheimer's. Her name's Jan, she'll introduce herself now. Hi, I'm Jan, Rosie's um, mum. <laughs> nearly said daughter. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing for me was when I found out that my mum had got memory loss. Yeah. And I knew my granny had had it earlier, but it didn't pose any particular problems yeah. for me or my mum, because yeah. granny was easygoing. Then my mum developed it when I was still visiting her at mm. least three, four times a day. And um, I tried to get my mum diagnosed and she wouldn't have it, wouldn't go. Yeah. And finally, I think when she was taken in for an uh, operation on her legs, um, it was discovered then that she got worse and she was officially rubber stamped, diagnosed. And then discharged. She didn't manage really at home after no, that, did no, she? No, she didn't manage well. And she got a little bit more aggressive, but um, that's because I brought her home to my house and um, she didn't recognise it at all. But we finally got a settle somewhere. Settled in a in, home. So in do you think lovely, your experience of home? Yeah, that, that impacted? Well, it impacted, but it also helped me later on in life to, to recognise something before, yeah. it, before, before you become kind of... Not rubber stamped, but before you... Yeah, you took control yeah, of your own diagnosis yeah, a bit, m- didn't you? Yeah, my mum was, was uh, in denial all yeah. the time. Yeah, all the time. Have, yeah. And I watched out for mine, thinking, don't come, please don't come, please don't come. But I'm absolutely fine. I still drive. Yeah. Um, I've got... Um, your full-time carer for your husband, yeah. your dad. So, yeah, you still have a good life, a brilliant life. It's just that you've got to know your limitations, that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. good, very wise. Being the age that we are, we've got appointments now and again. You're, how old are you now? Uh, 71. Yeah. And um, Alan's 74. Yeah, so like remembering appointments or so what Remembering before. appointments is uh, it's quite, quite an issue for me. So you have to have a system of telling somebody else, writing it down the minute you get the appointment so you don't forget. Yeah. Because once you've not written it down, you forget you've even got an appointment, let alone yeah. what day the appointment is. You've got like a little notice board, haven't you, yeah, up in the so house? That's my lovely daughter that set that up for me. Always <laughs> <laughs> on the other side of this interview. <laughs> so that does help, doesn't yeah. it? I was going to say, you also um, normally screenshot things on your phone and you often send them to me, so it's like I, so other people are remembering them on your behalf as yeah, well. Yeah, so it's acknowledging where you're limitations lie Mm. and uh, doing something about it that's proactive so I send on information I've been sent such Mm. as such as appointments I can't think Mm. of anything else but because my husband's uh, got his own particular ailments which are physical more than anything else um, and And he's he's paralyzed from the neck after um, a car accident but um, do you think having those long-term care responsibilities for dad and that routine that you had with dad sort of kept you going initially after yeah. the diagnosis after after it's mine. a devastating diagnosis yeah, yeah isn't after it? mine i just i carry but on you but... got up every morning and still you know yeah, did the morning routine looking after dad and yeah i refused to give up my you've my, always maintained my, my that. home job which is to look after my home my husband because you've always led a healthy lifestyle, haven't you? Mm. You've never smoked, not drunk much alcohol at all, always been outdoors, mm. been physically active. Mm. So Done yoga. We were quite shocked, really, when you got it, but then 
we don't know whether genetic factors influence it or anything else. And mm. Do you remember how you felt when you were first diagnosed to now? Have you uh, changed your perspective on it? Now, to tell you the truth, I can't remember whether I've changed perspective <laughs> on it or not. But I remember being, the word is hard to swallow. Yeah, when somebody says it, yeah. Uh, you've got two different forms of it. Yeah. But once I'd actually outed, as yeah, it were... and accepted it, yeah. yeah. Once I'd come out and I began to tell people, people... And I realised that half of them couldn't give a toss because if they're your friends already, they just go with it. Yeah. Um, and they say, oh, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. Yeah. Which actually means nothing in reality, but it means no, there's no offence taken on their part. Yeah. You know, so you just crack on with it. And lots of people are more than happy to help me remember stuff. And um, do you take medication for it? You do, don't you? I do. Take... Now, the problem with that I'll is accept. making sure that you take... Remember to take <laughs> remember it. Remember to take it. Yeah, and you also use, like, the Alexa, don't you, sometimes? I use that If a you lot. need to yeah. set an alarm or something to... Yeah. Um, and for your yeah. to take your medication, yeah. you have like a little prompt on that. Yeah. Um, and do you think that's helped the medication? Oh yeah, definitely. I do as well. Me and my dad and other people around you do feel like that's definitely helped stabilise. Mm. And one thing you did um, this year, which was a lovely um, thing to do, was that you were my birth partner for my oh, giving birth to my child, yeah, which was, um, wonderful. was wonderful. So in that sense, yeah. having a diagnosis of Alzheimer's doesn't necessarily mean you can't do the things you want to do and mm. tick off all of these big milestones in your life still. I mean, COVID hit the year after your diagnosis, which must have been difficult, having mm, to stay in through lockdown and not being able to go outside and go on trips and I things. I got a bit down because my diagnosis had come through then. But at the end of the day, I, I'm probably more chilled than I've ever been. Mm. Probably. Because I, I haven't got that capacity to keep on worrying about mm. something over and over again. So you don't think too much too much into the future no, with it? No, I don't see any point in that. No, but it's something I've always thought supporting you with Alzheimer's or being your daughter that I would want to do things mm. within your wishes. So we did have some frank conversations I think a few years ago after your diagnosis and we've not really revis re revisited them because I've not felt the need really because mm. things are quite stable. Yeah. I I used to garden a lot because we had a garden yeah. nursery and we used to sell to the public. You still do that, don't you? I still... Garden. Garden, but I tend not to sow new stuff. Stuff, I yeah. Maintain Maintain things that are there. Stuff that repeats itself. Yeah, like building new skills and learning new skills is apparently one of the things that a lot of patients, people without them can't do. Yeah. Although I have to say, um, I persuaded mum to get an iPhone didn't I, a you couple did. of years ago after you your did. diagnosis, because I've got one, and it just means we could share information. And and you and didn't I, want to, because it was a I new phone, to, and, and you've abs you have mastered it, and some of it might be fluke. <laughs> I'll get a text message on one platform, oh, like text yeah. messaging, and then I'll get a reply on WhatsApp <laughs> on yeah. Facebook. The, the other thing uh, about that is... I... Uh, Forgotten it now. Uh, uh, that's the first time I've forgotten. Yeah, if you don't get your the, words out, or somebody doesn't in, let on you on time, I was waiting you for time for you to finish just to butt in. Yeah. Sometimes, if you've Alzheimer's, you need to butt in with somebody because if you don't and you don't know how to do it, you don't know whether to be rude and say "shush," I've got something to say. Mm. And if you do that, that emotion that goes with it often blanks out the thing mm. you wanted to get across. Mm. With mum having it. What I've noticed that I've gone through some grieving process myself, which I've, so I've grieved parts of my mum that I feel have kind of slipped away sort of slowly over time. But I've still got to hear and I've also gained, <laughs> yeah, gained a different mum. Um, and it's like a living grief. But I'm if my mum accepts it and adjusts, then I kind of try and follow suit and adjust. And you do. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't grieve now. No. I don't I don't think I'd grieve at all now. And I don't think I'm as frustrated as I used to be. Yeah. And I also need other people more than I needed them before. Uh, for instance, I, I sometimes forget how to put the telly on because yeah. we've got uh, one of those tellies that does everything, mm. lets you watch films, lets you do this, that, that and the other. And unfortunately, we got that around about the same time I started to, to mm. lose my memory. But it's brilliant because instead I get 
the carers that come in to look after my husband, I get them to <laughs> set it all up for me. Tell me where the off button is. I'm, off, I'm away. Yeah. I must get this across that you don't lose things like how to drive. You just do mm. not forget how to drive. And you've not lost sort of the familiarity of... Um people around you and your family and friends yeah. at all, have you? Yeah. You're, you've, yeah. You have sort of stabilised. Yeah. Because some ad- advanced mm-hmm. stages of Alzheimer's, obviously people wouldn't recollect yeah. family members and things, which yeah. can be really difficult. Occasionally I'll forget we've got carers in to look after my husband. And occasionally I'll think, my God, I've been talking to him for six, uh, nine months and I know his name, but I can't think what it is. And then they go, oh, ding, mm. he's called T. Mm. You get used to that and it becomes mm. not an important thing in your life. You don't dwell on it. You, you just live in the moment, it. don't you? I've noticed. Mm. You don't dwell on the negative things no. and you're just happy in the moment. Um, I think I'm happier than I was. I think you're happier than you were. Yeah. In it, yeah. Because it's taken away my ability to go over something to again dwell in, and um, again yeah. To dwell. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. yeah. But almost a little bit mindful in that you just in the here and now. Yeah. Mm. Appreciate every minute that you can while, mm. while you have it. That was really interesting to hear, I suppose, that angle of dementia. I think it's really great that we have been able to talk to someone who is living with dementia and able to give their own perspective on how dementia impacts them. It's not often you get to hear the perspective from someone who has dementia. Mm. So, from the show... What are your biggest take-homes? Well, we have a few questions from listeners here, Kira, that I was going to put to you, actually. Oh, yeah. We'll do the quick fire rounds. First question uh, from a first listener here is, does everyone eventually get dementia, Kira? No. So there definitely are predisposing factors. Um, lifestyle is the biggest one. So mm. you are more at risk of having dementia if you have been a smoker and you've got quite a big smoking history. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're less at risk of having dementia if you... Uh, do plenty of active exercise, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, that, that doesn't mean you'll never get it. But they're, mm-hmm. they're two examples. I do know that there's been a recent Kentucky study, going to slide this in there because you mm-hmm. know I can't stop talking about the menopause. Um, but women who take lifelong HRT are 73% less likely to have Alzheimer's. And I think that's huge. That is huge. Another question that has come in here, and actually we've had several themes along this line. Does everybody who gets dementia end up in a nursing home? Also, no. If a nursing home is an option for anyone who chooses to go there, and for some people it's perfect. They know that they're well taken care of. They know that they don't have to overly rely on family and friends. Um, and they know they won't be lonely because there'll be other people to talk to. So it's a perfect option for some people. Mm. For some people, it's a necessity. Mm. Um, but for many people, there is so much support available now to help people stay in their homes for as long as possible. And, you know, talking to Emily there, that was exactly what she was describing. Mm. Her job is to help people to be independent mm. and live in their own home the way that they want to for as long as they want to. It's really important that people have the conversations about their wishes mm. and also that we listen to people's wishes because they might change too. Well, that's interesting because that's another common question that's come in is if I'm worried that my mother or father has dementia, should I tell them? Oh, I don't know. What do you think? So I think, yeah. Uh, so what I, I think I think, there's, there's, I think there's absolutely no harm in telling them and having that question, that conversation with them and saying, look, you know, I'm notice that your memory isn't great, that there's been a, a few, I suppose, examples of your memory maybe not being as sharp as it used to be. Have you noticed that? And if they say no, then that's useful in itself. And then the second thing is, you know, well, how we pop down to the GP and have a conversation with the GP together. And I think that's really helpful. Mm, I think for a lot of people who have dementia, um, there's fear there and there's fear of being judged and not mm. supported. And perhaps if you're able to say, listen, I'm here for you Mm. and this is a safe space, Mm. that's really important. Kira, that was our uh, programme this week, which is on dementia. What are your take home messages from this week's programme? This week's programme has reminded me to get out there and exercise a bit more, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, And also that there is so much more to dementia than just a decline. Mm. I think we've heard some quite inspiring messages um and i think it's it's a condition that you live with Mm. 
and that you can definitely put things in place for mm. to have the best experience possible. How about you? So for me, actually, it's interesting and it would be to have a conversation with your loved one and that may be your husband, your wife or your father and mother about this idea, the concept of an enduring power of attorney. So mm. basically start the conversation, mom, dad or my beloved wife or husband. What happened? What would what, what would you like to happen if your memory was to get worse and to put those structures in place? Because actually, you know, we think that's something that'll never happen to me, but actually it happens to lots of us. And to have had that conversation and to have the structures in place for that, if your memory does start to fail, that there are plans in place in terms of what we're going to do in terms of access and the finances and all those things. It's a really boring thing to talk about, but actually it makes the world of a difference if it happens. Absolutely. And I suppose another positive point, as always, is that basically do everything in moderation. So it's okay to have, you know, one glass of wine, but not a hundred. Um, you know, smoking is never okay. A bit of exercise and a balanced diet is the best way to live your life. So, Kira, next week, what are we talking about? Next week, we're going to talk about teen health. That's going to be a difficult topic. Yes, we are still deliberating quite what that's going to look like, hey? Because it's very broad and well, it's very difficult to know what to bring up. They've but definitely got some unique challenges. They do. And if there are particular questions that you have either about yourself, if you're a teenager listening at 6.30pm on a Thursday, uh, or if you have a child you're worried about, if you could send them in to us at bodyways at manxradio.com, that would be helpful for myself and Kira to decide what exactly we're going to cover teen health-wise. Uh, and other than that, uh, tune in to the podcast on manxradio.com for a fuller uh, length uh, interview with some of our guests and some more um, content. Yes, do. And next week, as I said, we'll be talking about teen health. So tune in to us then. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having us. Good hey, evening. Me. Good evening and good night.